Grammar Girl here. Hi, I'm Mignon Fogarty, and this week I have a quick and dirty tip about the difference between amused and bemused. I have a meaty middle about being bilingual and what it means to be fluent in a language. And I have a tidbit about what linguists call the positive anymore. Like when people say, it's always rainy anymore. First, amused versus bemused. What's the trouble? Well, bemused can be confused with amused. Bemused means confused, bewildered, or baffled. And it has nothing to do with amusement or humor or anything funny at all. The 18th century poet Alexander Pope first used the word bemused to describe someone who was muddled by liquor or had found a muse in beer. Think of bemused as similar to befuddled, and use it to describe only someone who's confused. And avoid bemused in situations where the context is ambiguous enough to leave the reader wondering whether you mean amused or confused. Here's an example from Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Draco was on the upper landing, pleading with another masked Death Eater. Harry stunned the Death Eater as they passed. Malfoy looked around, beaming for his savior, and Ron punched him from under the cloak. Malfoy fell backward on top of the Death Eater, his mouth bleeding, utterly bemused. He wasn't laughing, he was confused. Here's another example from Dennis Lehane's novel, Moonlight Mile. Patrick Kenzie asking a bemused waitress for a newspaper in small town USA. It's like a homepage without a scroll button. (laughs) So that was your quick and dirty tip. Bemused means confused, bewildered, or baffled. Don't use it to mean amused. Next, I have a meaty middle by Sile Graves about language fluency and how people learn language. Linguists usually talk about acquiring language instead of learning language, because acquire better describes the way babies speak their first language, largely without any active or conscious effort, which is very different from the way an adult studies a language. Many of these facts about language may seem familiar to those of you with children, or who speak or used to speak more than one language. As we describe language acquisition, remember that this process applies to any human language. There's a universal process in language acquisition, no matter how different languages sound on the surface. Although most of us know how challenging it can be to learn a second language in high school, most people don't realize how remarkable that makes the speed and effortlessness with which children acquire their first language. It's also a common misconception that children are taught how to speak. Most scholars agree that even imitation plays only a limited role, while the baby's brain, which comes equipped with specialized areas like vernix and bracas, plays a larger role in language acquisition. It's also surprising to learn that parents actually correct children very little, and even when they do, it has little effect. Studies show that while parents may correct children when they say inaccurate things, like calling someone by the wrong name, they seldom correct children when they make grammatical errors, like I eated that or I have two foots. Many of us find these temporary mistakes too cute to correct, and further, many parents who try to correct grammar in young children 
notice that their children seem impervious to the corrections and continue to make the minor error until they're ready to produce the correct term themselves. When psycholinguists say corrections, by the way, they aren't referring to correcting stylistic rules, like never end a sentence with a preposition. They're referring to the remarkable unconscious rules that all native speakers of every language produce with no effort. Either way, one thing is for sure. Children who are never corrected reach language fluency at the same time as the children whose parents do try to correct them. The reason adults don't absorb language by exposure alone is because of something that psycholinguists refer to as the critical period of language development. Although it varies from person to person, adolescence is a good approximate cutoff in that from as young as 10 and as late as the mid-teens, we lose our ability to acquire language without instruction the way children do. This is related to plasticity of the brain as it develops. Remarkably, although the spectrum of this critical period ends around adolescence, monolingual children generally complete the majority of the acquisition process by age three. There's always more vocabulary to acquire throughout childhood and life, but syntax, that's the order in which words appear automatically when we speak and in which they must do so in order to make sense to others, and other basic elements of linguistic grammar like phonology, sound patterns, and morphology, word components, are produced with ease before the end of preschool and toilet training. This is especially fast when you consider how complex and intricate human languages are. When children are exposed to a second language at four or five, they may still acquire it fluently if they get enough exposure to it, because that critical period of language development is still open. Adults have a very different experience. Most adults can learn a second language, but it requires great effort, work, time, energy, and memorization. Plus, some elements like vocabulary or native-like pronunciation may never be fully achieved by adult language learners. For example, many English speakers learning Spanish have trouble rolling the double R, and Hindi has a D sound with a puff of air that many English speakers can't even hear, let alone pronounce. You may speak another language at a rudimentary level, but never encounter thousands of low-frequency words like appendix or anesthesia, and hopefully you'll never have an urgent need to know those words while traveling. A fascinating side note about the fact that all children universally acquire the language spoken to them at the same rate is that there's no such thing as a simple or complicated or an easy or difficult-to-learn language. Some languages have more complex syntax, but very simple sounds. Others may have a complex system of sounds, but a smaller vocabulary, so there are slightly fewer words to learn. People who speak two or more languages fall on a spectrum of linguistic knowledge. One of the most common misconceptions is that bilingual adults are balanced, equally fluent in both languages, but this is rarely the case. A lot of adults who learned a second language later in life and speak it very, very well still recognize that they have an accent in the second language, or that they may not know every idiom or word like a native speaker does. 
They may also describe always speaking their first language fluently no matter how many years go by. Conversely, some adults report that speaking that second language for many years can subtly but adversely affect their first language. Perhaps when they travel to their home countries, they discover that they've lost some words or newer cultural references, and that they even pronounce their first language a bit stiffly, although this accent may disappear after a few days of being with family and native speaker friends. We often hear language learners make mistakes that sound like their own first language, but believe it or not, second languages can influence our first language too. Sometimes people may exaggerate their language abilities and claim to have acquired a second language in adulthood with fluency, when in fact they're only able to communicate in limited circumstances, such as when asking for directions or ordering food. This is still a form of bilingualism, but not as balanced as many imagine. Some scholars call them situational bilinguals. Again, there's no such thing as an inherently inferior or complicated or simple language. Because we speak language every day and don't remember learning our first language, it's difficult to reflect scientifically on how language actually works. So people who say X language was totally easy for me to learn as an adult may be less fluent than they realize, or their first language may be closely related to language X on the language family tree, which sometimes facilitates language acquisition in adulthood. Linguists call this the typological difference between languages. Linguistic typology is the study of language similarities and relationships. For example, German and English are much more closely related than German and Korean, and they share an alphabet plus some root words. However, again, there are many exceptions to this. Some Hebrew speakers can become outstanding speakers of French, even in adulthood with the right circumstances. Some Spanish speakers may struggle to learn even rudimentary Portuguese. In addition, although some studies claim that being bilingual from childhood facilitates learning a third language as an adult, even after that critical period, and many believe that this must be true, it's actually still very common for people who acquired two languages as children to still struggle enormously to learn a third in school. Conversely, some monolingual adults wind up being able to learn a second language through study and travel very well due to talent, interest, and variability from one adult to the next. Many people all over the world spoke one language at home and then a different one at school as young children. Because both languages were technically acquired in that critical period, we expect them to be balanced bilinguals. However, this is rarely the case, because language dominance will occur quickly, especially if the speaker doesn't attend a bilingual school or learns to read and write only in the community language. Also, if speakers don't have other types of exposure, like regular travel to a country where they can become immersed in the other language, the school language can take over. Linguists often refer to these bilinguals as heritage speakers. Heritage speakers may understand that home language better than they produce it, or have no accent yet not know the very basic vocabulary. The more fluent in the school language that the speaker's parents are, the more likely the children are to lose their home language, because children quickly figure out that their parents understand the school or community language. 
Then their brains resort to the community language in order to save resources and communicate more expediently. Heritage speakers come in many different levels of fluency, but all possess a rich and special familial and cultural connection to the home language. It can be helpful for these folks to understand that it's totally normal to default to a dominant language and to realize how challenging it can be to maintain two languages throughout one's life when both languages aren't necessary. So can you raise bilingual children when you only speak one language? Well, it's unlikely to be very effective, although some foreign language exposure is great and fun for kids. As linguist Francois Grosjean explains, two of the most important factors in achieving success are amount of exposure, which is difficult to get enough of if neither the parents nor the society speaks the language, and then need, meaning that children must be in a position where they truly need to use the language to communicate most effectively with certain people. A 50-50 bilingual school can sometimes work, but they're hard to find. So a critical element of human language that's frequently overlooked by non-linguists can be expressed by that old saying, if you don't use it, you lose it. Some people may plan to move abroad for a few months or study a language for a few years and expect that this knowledge will be set for life. However, trying to speak a language that you studied years ago and never spoke again usually doesn't work very well. In addition, some research shows that speaking more than one language can have some cognitive benefits, such as a delayed onset of dementia or slightly faster reaction time. But as linguist Ellen Bailey-Stock confirms, you have to regularly speak both languages. Studying Spanish for a few years in high school and rarely using it again won't help you stave off Alzheimer's. Interestingly, some studies suggest that because bilingual people are so good at switching between languages, they're better at switching between other tasks, too. Other studies contradict this, but the important thing for sure is that being able to communicate with so many more people around the world is a true advantage. It's a challenge to learn a second language as an adult, but it's worth the effort. And if you want your children to have the advantages of being bilingual— Try to speak only that home language to them as early as possible and as much as you can. That segment was written by Sayel Graves, who's a linguist and professor at the City University of New York at LaGuardia Community College. And now here's your tidbit about The Positive Anymore by Neil Whitman. In July 1994, The New Yorker published a short piece by Jack Winter called How I Met My Wife. This story is a barrage of sentences like this one. I was, after all, something to sneeze at, someone you could easily hold a candle to. Sentences like this one sound odd because the idioms in it are usually used in negative sentences. For example, that's nothing to sneeze at, or the movie's okay, but it can't hold a candle to the book. Because of this restriction, linguists call words and phrases like these negative polarity items. Actually, that name's not entirely accurate, since negative polarity items can also occur in questions, like, is that anything to sneeze at? Or in a few other constructions, such as, few books can hold a candle to Pilkey's Captain Underpants series. Still, negative polarity items, or NPIs, is the name that's stuck. And not all NPIs are idioms. One of the most common NPIs in English is the word any, You can say, I didn't see any turtles, 
or do you have any gum, or few people have any idea what goes on here. But sentences like, I saw any turtles, she has any gum, and lots of people have any idea what goes on here, just don't make sense. However, there's one NPI in English that in some dialects has broken free of negations and questions. It's the word anymore. Just about every English speaker will accept anymore as a negative polarity item. In sentences like, I don't love you anymore, or why don't we ever go out anymore? On the other hand, most English speakers stumble over sentences like these. Kids grow up fast anymore. It's always rainy anymore. Anymore, I do the cooking. If those sentences sound fine to you, then your variety of English grammar allows what linguists call positive anymore. If they don't sound fine, then feel free to mentally replace anymore with these days or nowadays. Although it's not a good idea to use the positive anymore in your formal writing, you should know that it's not a grammar mistake. It's a regionalism. The Oxford English Dictionary labels positive anymore as a feature of Irish English and has its earliest citation from 1898 in Northern Ireland. It also takes positive anymore as colloquial American English. And according to the Yale Grammatical Diversity Project's website on positive anymore, the positive anymore is most common in the Midwest. And there's also a small pocket of positive anymore speakers in Arizona. I'll put a link to the Yale Grammatical Diversity Project on the transcript of this article at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all, or should I say there isn't any more. That segment was written by Neil Whitman, who has a PhD in linguistics and blogs at literalminded.wordpress.com. And I'm Mignon Fogarty. That's all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.